This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Many of you will recognize Carl as an author and prolific commentator at market-ticker.org. I'm going to talk to Carl about what's going on in the U.S. economy, what his forecast for stocks is, and I'm also going to get his commentary, his perspective on electric vehicles. Uh, He's going to share some uh, truly eye-opening facts with you, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. Carl will be joining me in segments two and three of today's program. And you know, over the past couple weeks, as I have looked at what's going on, financially speaking, at the federal government level, the words of my history professor have never ringed more true. And certainly the United States and much of the rest of the world are ignoring the sage advice that at the time I really didn't realize was sage advice, but now that I look back upon it, it really was. Because at some future point, potentially even very soon, the folly of current monetary policy will become overwhelmingly obvious as the ugly consequences of excessive debt and reckless currency creation emerge. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the U.S. government debt now stands in excess of $34 trillion. You can go to debtclock.org and see that. And when you break that down, $34 trillion, first of all, is really a number that's hard to fathom. But Business Insider did an article, and they found that the average net tax payment to the IRS per tax return is about $16,500. Now, if you paid more than $16,500 in total federal taxes, you paid more than average. And conversely, if you paid something less than $16,500, you paid something less than average. Now, if you take a look at how many tax returns were filed in the United States and you do the math, each taxpayer's share of U.S. government debt is about 16 times your annual tax liability. Now, think about that for a minute. Whatever your tax liability was last year, you need to multiply that net tax payment to the IRS by 16. So let's say your tax liability was below average. Let's say you had a $5,000 total tax liability. You need to pay your tax liability and then come up with another $80,000 to pay your share of the U.S. government debt. If your federal income tax payment was $10,000, you need to come up with $160,000. If you paid a little bit more than average, if you paid $20,000 to the IRS, your tab is $320,000. Now, you get the idea. But here's the real point. That's just to pay down debt. It does not solve the annual operating deficit problem. Last year, the deficit was about $2 trillion. This year, we're on track for another $2 trillion deficit, assuming we do not get an election year goodie bag intended to influence voters prior to the November election. 
Forgive me for sounding cynical. However, I believe we will likely see that and the deficit will be higher. Now, if you want to do your share on your tax return to cover the operating deficit, every single person needs to send in another $23,500 to have the government act or operate rather with a balanced budget. Now, I went through all those numbers with you. It took me about three and a half minutes to do so. And if your instincts are telling you that that sounds impossible, let me commend you on your good instincts. Because when you look at the math, it simply can't be done. And since it seems that we will not operate with a balanced budget that can only happen through cutting spending, and by the way, interest service on U.S. government debt is now in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars a year. Contrast that to what the government spends on Social Security every year. It's $1.35 trillion. Expenditures for interest on the debt have continued to rise as interest rates go up. So if this group of Washington politicians collectively, and I hate to lump them all together because in my view there are a few shining stars, you may have the same opinion, but collectively I think we can all agree that it's very, very unlikely that spending gets cut. Well, if this problem, if this fiscal problem cannot be solved through raising taxes, if the politicians won't cut spending, because if they did, we're immediately in a recession. I've talked about that on past programs. Then there's only one thing left for the politicians to do. More currency creation. Now, let me be clear. I am not a trained economist. I happen to think that might give me a bit of an advantage in that I have not been formally trained in the art of Keynesian economics, which simply is an economic philosophy that says whenever there's a slowdown in the economy, the government spending should pick up the slack. So again, I am not a trained economist. However, I learned math when we couldn't have calculators in math class. I learned math when there was something called flashcards that were used. So my math skills are competent. And in light of the totally ridiculous monetary policies being promulgated by many trained economists, I think the conclusions that I've reached here have been reached through simple math. And that conclusion is simply this. Currency creation in some form will continue because there is no other possible outcome. Now, history actually teaches us that this will be the case. I started this segment by talking about the wisdom of my history professor who said that those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. When you study history, there have been many examples of currency creation to attempt to solve a debt problem, and each time it's been tried, the policy has failed miserably. Now, before I run out of time in this segment, I want to offer you an opportunity to get a couple of free resources. If currency creation does continue, perhaps having an inflation hedge in your portfolio with at least some of your money is going to make some sense. 
To that end, I would like to invite you to get a Precious Metals Buyer's Guide. You can get the Precious Metals Buyer's Guide by visiting plpmetals.com. That's P as in Papa, L as in Lima, P as in Papa, plpmetals.com. If you let me know where to mail that report, I'll be glad to send it to you at no cost and with no obligation. And I've got a special report also for the month of February. It's titled IRA Tax Management Strategies. If you have an IRA, if you have a 401k, if you have a 403b, if you have some other type of tax-qualified retirement account, with the exception, of course, of a Roth, the question is not, are you going to pay taxes on your accumulated balance? Rather, the question is, when are you going to choose to pay taxes on your accumulated balance? If you don't put in place a tax management strategy, which is the subject of this IRA tax management strategies report, and again, that is available by going to requestyourreport.com, but if you don't put a proactive strategy in place, by default, you'll have the reactive strategy in place, which has you start taking distributions at age 73. Now, based on a 4% growth rate in an IRA account, which I'm sure many of you would agree is a conservative growth rate, by age 93, your required minimum distributions will be about two-thirds greater than they were at age 73. So if you've got to take a $20,000 distribution at age 73, you're going to be looking at having to take around $13,000 more in distributions or about $33,000 at age 93, and that's based on a 4% growth rate. There are strategies you can use while tax rates are lower, and current lower tax rates are set to sunset in 2026. There are strategies you can use to potentially reduce the amount of tax that you'll pay on your IRA or 401k over your lifetime. That's the subject of the IRA tax management strategies report. You can get the copy of that report by visiting requestyourreport.com. The website again, requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific writer. Uh, He's uh, written some books. His uh, thoughts on a daily basis can be read at market-ticker.org. I follow his work. I would encourage you to do that as well. Again, the website, market-ticker.org. Carl, welcome back to the program, and thank you for being here. Oh, well, thank you for having me on, Dennis. So, Carl, we're in an election year. Stocks are going to go up. We're going to have a bull market, right? Uh-huh. And uh, let's see, the last two crashes, when did they happen? I think they were both election years. That'd be 2008 and 2000. I I, I think you're right. But what do you think of all this uh, bullishness that exists? The Fed's going to cut rates this year, and that's going to mean stocks go up. What, what, what's your take? 
Well, where, where, where did anybody actually hear the Fed say they were going to cut rates? I, the funny thing is, is that that's, that's what the market has taken from these meetings. But I haven't actually seen that from, you know, I mean, you could say, well, you know, the dot plot, said, you know, the dot plot is a projection. Uh, it's not a statement. It's not a promise. Uh, by the way, it's, it, it tends to move a lot over time. That's why it's called a dot plot. <laughs> Um, but the, the real question is from a, from a inflation and similar point of view, uh, where is the belief that other than from demand destruction, that in, that the inflationary impulse is actually gone? Um, I, you know, I mean, certainly if I look at the PPI, which leads the consumer price index, cause that's from people making things, the production side. It takes time to show up on the shelf. Where I'm seeing the decline is in trade and transportation and warehousing. Well, that tells me that we've got profound economic softness. I mean, that, that's why you have basic supply and demand. You have falling prices because you have less demand, right? I mean, that's that's how this stuff works. Uh, and then I look at things like the New York and Philly Fed Index, and they're not so robust either. So... I I don't see, you know, what I, what I see is the leading edge of a recession. If the Fed cuts rates because there's a recession, that's not usually good for stock prices, is it? Correct. You know, I think the last uh, several declines in the market uh, have occurred when the Fed has started cutting rates, which uh, they typically do in response to exactly the conditions you just outlined. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's certainly there isn't, there isn't a strong indication of this yet in the labor market. Okay, we had the we had the labor report that came out. Now there was a rather ominous piece of information in there, uh, in that December is usually not the firing month; it's usually January. And January is also a difficult month to read because it's the rebase month. It's when the department, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, goes through and, and adjusts all their metrics. So they're are frequently dislocations in the data in January that make it somewhat tough to get an apples-to-apples comparison. Uh, and in some cases, they're severe enough adjustments, so it's basically impossible. But we saw in the household survey, we saw a very large negative print on the unadjusted numbers. And that's the actual number of people working. Now, if you have if you have two jobs... In the establishment survey, you get counted as as two people working because one employer does not know that you have a job with the other one. And they ask, how many people do you employ? But in the household survey, they, they call people and they say, do you have a job? Well, if you say you have two jobs, you count you still count as, I've got a job. So you count as one. And if you don't have a job, you count as zero. Um, and in the household survey, we saw well over a million people fewer working in December than January. And uh, just, that's that's a problem because that's the third week is a sample week, and that is before Christmas. So these were people that got laid off or fired in front of the holiday. Interesting. So, Carl, what does all this mean for stocks? We've got listeners that aspire to a comfortable, stress-free retirement. They have money invested in IRAs and 401ks, many of them uh, follow index investing in stocks. What do you think they what do you think their portfolios look like at the end of the year? 
Well, I think they look really good at the end of the year, but I but I think you need to be a little bit cautious at this particular point because valuations are usually a decent predictor of forward returns over time. Um, and a few years ago, being in short-term treasuries uh, it didn't make it. I mean, yeah, your money was safe and you can get any return on it. That's not true today. Today, you can do five five and a quarter easily. Uh, in a managed, you know, in an ETF type of product from essentially any of the mainline brokerages. And those are 100% daily liquidity, all in the short end in treasury. So they carry no rate risk. And uh, that's the alternative that you can be in. You can park your money there and you make, you know, your 5.1 or 5.2. And that's, uh, you can, you can, if you're willing to do the work yourself in treasury direct, you can get into the 5.3 area. But, you know, for a lot of people, they're like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll give the guys 15 or 20 basis points in order to, take care of handling that rollover every, you know, four weeks or 13 weeks. And, uh, and, and frankly, I think for, you know, for most people, if you got to actually go out and work or whatever, uh, yeah. Okay. You know, what's, I mean, would I rather have the 15 basis points? Sure. But is it, is that a reasonable price for the service? Yeah, it is. And so I, you know, I don't have any quarrel with that. I've got an awful lot of money stuck in those right now, simply because I find valuations unattractive at these, at these prices. And it's, it's not that I, you know, that I necessarily think everything is going to go down the toilet on me. It's it's that looking on a forward basis, uh, I am never going to wake up in the morning and find that twenty percent, or ten percent, or even five percent of my treasury only money market fund is gone. Okay, at the worst case is I I wake up and tre- you know rates have come down and. Well, it's not making five percent now. It's making three, and I sell it and put it in something else. Um, whereas, on the other hand, if you're in a if you're in a stock fund or if you're in individual stocks, uh, you could wake up one morning and very easily find that that is in fact the case. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Five percent or ten percent of the value is just vaporized. So, Carl, assuming we get a stock market correction this year with valuation levels this high, and I, I happen to agree with you. I think the Buffett indicator is now at its second highest level of, of all time. Um, do you think that U.S. Treasuries become a safe haven again and we see yields come back down? How do you think this plays out? It's tough to tell because the, the, part of the problem you have is that there's uh, – so there is there is a basic concept that you have within the Treasury market in that the primary dealers, which are all the large banks – they have the obligation to bid on treasury auctions. And people seem to think this means that that the automatic thing that happens is that you know that that is going to drive rates down rapidly and violently. Um, what people forget is that the obligation to bid does not mean at what price. <laughs> and so that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, they're obligated to bid, but nobody said at what number, right? And so what what those guys are going to be looking at is, first off, what can we sell off to our clients in the secondary market? Because that's what they do with most of these things. They buy them. They don't sit on them. They you know, they sell them to their clients. Uh, but the other question is, what is a client expecting in terms of forward inflation? Because we have just gone through a 20-year period where the real rate of interest to borrow money and do things is from for an awful lot of people certainly not if you're you're you know you're running up credit card debt but for an awful lot of people especially in the industrial area that real number has been negative and that is now i mean if you believe the cpi it's not negative now 
Okay, I don't happen to believe the CPI, but at the point that that currency, you know, money actually has a cost to borrow, a real cost. Um, pretty much all of these, you know, little games that go on where people, oh well, you know, we'll just double into this because uh, we're getting paid to do it. Uh, that all comes to an immediate end, and and that's what's driven an awful lot of this expansion that we've seen over the last, you know, really over twenty years, and I and. We're now at the point where you have two exponential curves. The the one on the bottom, the debt side, when you start doing this, you start this kind of a policy, it feels really good because the the gap between the two grows for a period of time. During that time, everyone feels great. And it's kind of like starting to use hard drugs. It feels great when you start, but what comes later is not so good. And we're now in the in the phase where those two lines have converged and crossed. And so at a certain point, this becomes uneconomic. Uh, and I think we've we've gone a, a number of years past the point where that should have corrected. Uh, the pandemic certainly didn't help things because they threw money at the problem. And and now the question becomes, well, uh, you know, can can we keep the plates in the air or are they all going to come crashing down? And I I just don't like being on the the side of the table that says, "Oh yeah, this is an indefinite forward thing. This is never going. There's never going to be anything that goes wrong here." So, Carl, uh, we got a couple minutes left in this segment. We are in an election year, as we said at the outset of this segment. Uh, do you think we're going to see more stimulus, more goodie bags, if you will, for the electorate? And what does that do to the deficit? And how does that affect the bond market? Um. So. There's a there's a lot of political strum and fear right now. Uh, there is a growing group of people in the Congress who are saying this this insanity must stop. Um, a few years ago, there was none. Now there is a you know it's it's not growing fast, but it's growing. And you just had another CR that was you know that was put up. Uh, after the new speaker said there weren't going to be any more CRs. That was obviously a lie, uh, because now it has happened. So at a, at some point, uh, fiscal responsibility is going to have, have to come back into the game. And I don't know when it happens. Uh, I think an awful lot de- depends on what happens in November, of course. But if you go around and you talk to people, and you look at the the polling data, which is and, and polling day is notoriously inaccurate. But if you actually talk to people around you, and you're you know you're not one of those people that uh, that has their own private learjet, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who who doesn't think that the higher prices they're paying for car insurance and groceries and, and things like this are good. I think you'd have trouble finding someone who says, "Oh, that's not a big deal. That doesn't really matter. The fact that my grocery bills doubled in the last three years is no big thing." I think everybody is saying, "Yeah, it is a big thing." And in historically speaking, in elections, no matter what anybody what the pundits try to tell you, everyone votes their wallet. And and I think most people, when they look at their wallet, it's thinner than it was. Well, we're gonna have to leave it there for this segment. My guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. That's market-ticker.org. I'd encourage you to check it out. I'll continue my conversation with Carl when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us.
I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to RLA Radio. My guest on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. You can read his work at market-ticker.org. That's market-ticker.org. I follow his work regularly. I would encourage you to do the same. And Carl, we were chatting a bit before we started recording today about electric vehicles. And I think you use the term EV scam. Let's jump in. Can you explain? Yeah, I did use the term scam. Um, So there's this thing called the CAFE standard. Most people have probably heard of it. It's, It's a fleet standard for fuel economy that the energy department, the EPA have. Uh, and it has been adjusted many times over the years, always higher. And the premise behind this is that if you're General Motors or Ford or Chrysler, whoever, uh, you make vehicles and your entire fleet is supposed to have equal or better than a particular number of miles per gallon, a certain amount of fuel efficiency. If you fall short, you have to pay a fine. And the fine is determined by how short you are. Well. If people like buying big trucks, which don't meet the standards, <laughs> uh, the more trucks they buy as opposed to nice little small cars, the bigger the fine is. That's not so good, right? So what's what's happened is that electric vehicles, of course, don't use gasoline or diesel fuel. Um, so the energy department... Uh, comes up with an efficiency standard end-to-end for an electric vehicle by looking at, okay, i got to generate the electricity. i got to deliver it down the wire to wherever the person charges, so, you know, whether the house or one of those superchargers, whatever. Uh, they put the power in the battery, and then they drive the vehicle, and um, we can calculate the thermodynamic efficiency of this entire process from one end to the other, turn that into BTUs, and then compare that against the fuel efficiency of a gasoline-powered car because energy is energy, okay? We're just using different forms to turn the wheels. Well, so when you look at this, uh, a a Tesla Model Y uh, ends up, in reality, at about 65 miles per gallon, equivalent to gasoline, okay? Well, buried in this... In in these regulations, um, 37,000 pages into the Federal Register, by the way, <laughs> where they hope nobody would find it, is a multiplier of 6.67. So the compliance value of the EV is not 65 miles per gallon, it's 430 miles a gallon. And why is that important? Well, because... Ford sells F-150s, they can either pay the fine or they can buy the credit from somebody who has much better than the mandated mileage. They get a credit that they can sell to someone else. It's it's a tradable commodity. So Tesla has uh, sold an awful lot of these credits and pocketed an awful lot of revenue, and they sell it at a price that's a little bit cheaper than the fine which Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler all gladly buy because, well, that way they don't have to pay the fine. They have the credit. They can offset it. And it's a if, decision, right? It's cheaper to buy the credit. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a pure business decision. If I, if I can buy a credit for a dollar and the fine's $2, well, okay, that's not very difficult to figure out what I'm going to do, right? Right. All right. Well, the problem is now this is out in the public. 
And as it turns out, the way the law's written, you're not allowed to do this. So this is now going to get challenged. There will be lawsuits over this. Um, This is going to upset the apple cart in all probability uh, because Congress would have to go back and specifically authorize this chicanery, which I sort of kind of doubt they're going to do. And if they don't do it, then you'd expect this would get clawed back because it was never legal. Um, yeah, good luck. And, you know, in the world we live in today, that kind of justice never happens, right? I mean, Amazon did the same thing with sales tax and captive LLCs with their warehouses. And you would have thought that the states would have clawed that, you know, clawed back all their retroactive sales taxes. Well, they didn't. But Amazon ultimately did have to start collecting them, which is why when you buy something on there now, it's it's charged. Okay. Uh, but even if it just ends up with this ceasing, um, when EV makers build these cars, it's not just that nice credit you get, you know, $7,000 for buying it or whatever it is. The price of the vehicle also reflects the credit that gets generated by making it. So if that car, if without the credit, was $50,000, with that credit out of the picture, it might be fifty-five or sixty. And it, that's absolutely now. What, what's the take rate? What what choices do people make when you know? Oh, oh now wait a minute. Excuse me. How much? <laughs> so yeah, I, this this has the potential to completely upset the apple cart, and and then you have all the issues that people are running into that they're now discovering. Oh, by the way, uh, you can't charge lithium battery packs in under freezing temperatures, and so when it's very cold. Uh, the the pack has to be preconditioned first so that it's above that temperature. Well, if it's negative 10 and the wind is howling and you're outdoors, you don't have a garage, uh, you may not be able to draw enough energy from the system to be able to heat the battery pack to the point that you can charge it and you end up with a brick. Uh, and that happened to a bunch of people in Chicago here just this last week. So, you know, how practical are these vehicles in the real world when you get away from the I'm saving the planet virtue signaling stuff and into actual economics? And the answer is, well, we made them look a whole lot better than they really were with this scheme with these credits. And now that appears that it's going to go away. And so I, I, I think this changes the entire economic picture for EVs. Well, and Carl, I mean, the, the, the pendulum already started to swing the other way. I mean, Ford has got back their production. I mean, pe- people are not buying EVs and, I've talked to a number of people here in the last few months that have gone from a pure electric vehicle to a hybrid vehicle because they found for the way they used a vehicle, the EV just was not as practical. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, part of the the problem you have with EVs is that there's always this range issue in the rate of charge, okay, which there isn't anything you can do about. It's a matter of physics. A battery-powered vehicle has to carry the oxygen for its reaction inside the battery. And a fuel-powered vehicle gets the oxygen from the atmosphere. So it is always going to be at a significant penalty in terms of energy density simply because you have to carry the other part of the reactant around with you in the box. And for a fuel-powered vehicle, that's not true. And that's a huge difference. I mean, if you think about, you know, what do you end up with at the end of this? CO2, right? Well, that's one carbon, two oxygens. Well, guess where the oxygen came from? Out of the air. 
in a battery powered vehicle, you're still creating a, a what's called a redox reaction. It's the same, it's basically the same sort of chemical reaction, except the oxygen has to be inside the case. So you got to cart it around with you. And there isn't any way to get around that. Um, and you know, then, of course, the other thing is, you know, it takes you 45 minutes or an hour to charge it uh, at one of the supercharger stations, whereas I can put, you know, 500 miles worth of range in my gas car in five minutes at a pump. So it's, is there a market for them? Yes, there is. There's a market for high-performance sports cars, too. But do you want a high-performance sports car when it's snowing to beat the band and it's 10 below zero outside? Uh, don't think so. <laughs> right. So, so Kyle, you know, with, with, this, with these developments, um, how do you think that impacts the broader economy? How, how do you see that uh, impacting, you know, where the U.S. economy goes? I mean, it, it's obviously going to be another drag. Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty significant because so much of this so-called transition to green energy uh, doesn't work on mathematics. Okay, you you wouldn't have put a six six hundred and sixty seven percent multiplier into the regulations if if the math worked without it. Okay, you just wouldn't. That's a great point. That's absolutely good. Yeah, and I mean, you know, do you like buying power out in California where it's 35 cents a kilowatt hour and here in Tennessee it's 10? Well, I don't think so. I mean, up in Michigan where you are, it's, I mean, the average up there I think is like 13 or 14 cents. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Why would you pay double for the same thing just, just because you want to claim, you know, well, you know, I'm saving the planet. Well, okay, maybe you are and maybe you're not, and, you know, we could have that debate. But I'm going to stay out of the political side of it and just look at the economic side of it. If you take the economics, the, the cost shifting out of this, uh, you know, that $80,000 Ford F-150 becomes 65 or 70, and the Tesla isn't 35 or 40, it's 55. Now, uh, does that shift demand? Uh, I think so. <laughs> okay. I, and then you have to look at the rest of the industry spread that has gone on with regards to a lot of these these energy projects. They're very expensive. They employ people, but do they actually make economic sense? I, I think the answer is no. And driving costs up, in, I mean, that's that's an inflation driver. Wouldn't you like to see those inflation drivers go away? Wouldn't that help the economy in general? I think it would. Absolutely. So, Kyle, what's the? We've got a couple minutes left in this segment. Uh, do you see this uh, really coming to a head this year in twenty twenty four, or what's your take on timing here? Well, i I don't know that that the you know the whole green energy EV thing blows up in everybody's face this year necessarily. Um, but now that this is out in the public, I'm sure there's going to be it's going to become a campaign issue. I, I don't think there's any way that that's avoided. And exactly how that all plays out and when is a little unclear. But I do believe that we're going to see some economic earthquakes this year simply because the squeeze is still on. People are saying that, well, you know, the, the headline CPI inflation number is, is coming down. And in a few places it is. But where I'm seeing it come down on the input side, on the inlet side, is in demand destruction. And that's being signified by the fact that that – those deflationary impulses are showing up in trade and transportation, and that tells me that you've got a demand problem. So basically, people, even you know, even with all the credit that's available, they're running out of money, 
And that, uh, you know, that means slack demand. That's going to mean unemployment is going to go up. You're going to see firings and layoffs. And uh, into the maw of an election, that's that's not going to be a very popular thing for anybody to be running on. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. The website, again, market-ticker.org. Carl, thank you for joining us today. Always enjoy the conversations we have here. I know the listeners do, too. Love to have you back down the road. You bet, anytime. We will return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to my special guest, Mr. Carl Denninger, for joining me on today's program. Now, as I talked about in the first segment, official U.S. government debt now stands at $34 trillion, actually a little bit more than that. And if you break that down on a per-tax-return basis, In order to solve this problem, in order to pay off the national debt, every single person would have to take their total tax liability, whatever they ultimately paid to the IRS, that would be the amount withheld from uh, income payments from a pension, the amount withheld from your paychecks, plus what you paid in uh, maybe on a quarterly basis as far as estimated taxes. Add all that together, and whatever your ultimate tax liability was, You've got to increase your payment to the IRS by 16-fold in order to pay off the national debt. Now, that that does not solve the $2 trillion deficit problem. You've got to add another $23,500 to that total to balance the budget. Well, mathematically speaking, this can really not be done. And certainly there does not seem to be any will in Washington to cut spending, much less balance the budget. And incidentally, balancing the budget would require $2 trillion less in spending, which would immediately move the country into a recession or a depression. So the only other conclusion you can come to, the only conclusion you can come to rather, is that currency creation will continue because there's really not any other option. Now, history teaches us, as I said in the first segment, that this will be the case. Now, there is a book that if you've not read it, I would encourage you to check it out. It's written by Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Roghoff. And the book is titled, This Time is Different. The book provides a comprehensive historical study on this very topic. In the book, Reinhardt and Roghoff outline historical examples of countries that have attempted to borrow borrow their way to prosperity and irrefutably conclude the policy always fails and it eventually results in a crash. However, what's interesting is each time the policy is pursued, the experts at the time, those determining monetary policy, those policymakers state that this time is different. Yeah, we know that happened before. We know it ended badly before, but this time is different. Now, we're seeing that this time is different mentality from some economists. 
Now, there have been some mainstream publications like the New York Times that said this is a problem. The New York Times wrote a piece called The Debt Matters Again. CNN said this is unsustainable. They said that this is a dangerous situation. It's a truly depressing environment, and it's unsustainable. Economics professor Sung Wan Son from Loyola Marymount said the situation is pretty grim. I mean, the reality is this. When you look at the numbers that I just outlined, you don't really need a PhD in economics to determine that this is an unsustainable situation. Now, not all economists feel this way, and here's where the this time is different argument comes in. In an NPR interview, economist Stephanie Kelton, and you may recognize that name because Kelton was an advisor to Bernie Sanders during his 2016 presidential run. Kelton is a disciple of a theory called modern monetary theory. Now, this is not mainstream economic thinking. Kelton says, you shouldn't be afraid of this debt. She said, it's the word debt that makes people afraid. And so when I think about this, you know, I look at them and I say, well, it's just keeping track of our savings. Now, Kelton, I will quote her directly, in a, and this is from a Mises article on the topic. Quote, the idea that taxes pay for what the government spends is pure fantasy. It is the currency issuer, the federal government itself, not the taxpayer that finances all government expenditures. I'd like to ask Ms. Kelton if that's the case, why do we pay taxes? Kelton says, the carpenter can't run out of inches. The stadium can't run out of points. The airline can't run out of frequent flyer miles. And the U.S. can't run out of dollars. They just print them. Well, a carpenter might not be able to run out of interest, but the carpenter can run out of lumber and nails. Airlines might not be able to run out of frequent flyer miles, but they can certainly run out of seats and fuel. Both of these facts are something that better economists than Kelton have pointed out. So this whole idea that you can print your way to prosperity is really what modern monetary theory is about. And if you have inflation, no problem. You just increase taxes to get some of that excess currency out of the economy. Now, obviously, I disagree strongly with Ms. Kelton, as do most people with a modicum of common sense. However, the most important question to for you is, where do we go from here? Well, we've talked about it on today's program. The debt and deficit problem is too large to ever be solved through tax increases. And since the collective group of Washington politicians will seemingly never become fiscally responsible, short term anyway, we should expect more currency creation. So a couple things that you should think about in your portfolio. And I've got a couple free resources to offer you today. The first is a precious metals buyer's guide. Precious metals have historically been good inflation hedges. I'd like to send you a free buyer's guide. Uh, just let me know where to mail it by going to PLP Metals. That's Papa Lima Papa Metals. Uh, and I'll mail you that guide at no cost and with no further obligation. 
The second thing you might think about doing is figuring out how to minimize your tax liability. And one of the best places to do this is on your IRA or 401k account. If you'll visit requestyourreport.com, I will send you my February special report titled Tax Management Strategies. The report will give you ways to potentially reduce the tax liability on your IRAs and 401ks. And this can also have the potential added benefit of reducing the taxes that you pay on your Social Security benefits once you retire. So if you visit requestyourreport.com, I'll send you the IRA Tax Management Strategies Report. And again, to get the Precious Metals Buyer's Guide, simply go to plpmetals.com. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.